difficult challenges are, uh, we have, at some point in time, they have to move to somewhere else, right? We, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants. Um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island. And so we, we don't, we can't house everyone here that lives here and works here. We don't have housing for 50 more people. Which I think is, you know, the very hypocrisy that uh, Republicans were trying to point out in doing this stunt, which, which, to be fair, is totally a political stunt in my view. And I'm going to talk more about uh, that in my radar and what I think should be done. But look, what, you know, the point of this was, was to say, you know, you think 50 immigrants are difficult for your community to handle. Many, many times more than this are coming across the border and entering border communities every day. So if, if you're, you can't handle this, you know, the, the border towns might be somewhat better equipped, but, but not, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that, that uh, immigrants stay in these communities. They actually don't have to. The asylum seekers, who are by definition not actually illegal immigrants while they seek asylum, while they're waiting for their cases to be adjudicated, they could go anywhere in the United States. There, so so I, I totally understand the point that Republicans were trying to expose, that, you know, blue enclaves elsewhere in the country are all like rah-rah immigration in theory, but are not, you know, dealing with what that means actually up close. You know, what was your takeaway from all of this? I... Um... I agree with you. Of course, it was a political stunt. And, you know, the sort of lefty in me, the human in me, um, you know, you see these people being used in this way. Mm -hmm. And of course, one thinks these are human beings who are being put to use in a political manner. And that did make me uncomfortable. However, I think the point that um, Governor DeSantis was making is extremely important. The compassion that progressives, especially elite, rich progressives, express towards migrants, which is driving the Biden administration's total refusal to police the border. Um, you know, this compassion has curdled into absolute cruelty, the kind of cruelty that is being incentivized by their you know, holier than thou approach towards having an open border, it has inflicted insane amounts of cruelty on the migrants themselves as they make this extremely perilous journey because there is every incentive to do it right now, but as well on their working class neighbors whose wages are being undercut by this total mm. influx, influx of 2 million workers, people willing to work for less than minimum wage. This is hugely problematic, but to me, the real story here was it, it not just the delicious exposure of the hypocrisy of these rich liberal elites. I mean, Martha's Vineyard, 60% of the people who own property there are vacationers, are, are people who come just for the summer, meaning that 60% of the housing right now on Martha's Vineyard is vacant, right? These huge mansions for these people to say, we don't have the housing for 50 migrants while having lawn signs on their million dollar properties that say immigrants <laughs> are welcome here and then turning around and deporting 50 people from their home with those lawn signs still there right i mean it turns out immigrants were not welcome there right within 24 hours they had mobilized to deport them and there is this footage of these you know rich white women weeping hugging the migrants and saying te amo you know while expelling them from their mm -hmm. rich elite enclave and demanding that working class border towns right bear we actually the have that footage here let's burden. play it 
Here, yeah, here we go. Here's that footage um, of them of them uh, <laughs> doing exact like celebrating, you know, putting putting these uh, migrants back on the bus to get them out of town. Uh, you know, the self-congratulation of these people, like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we took care of the, the migrants, yeah, for like 24 hours. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the thing that I think is really important to point out is not just how hypocritical this is, but that this is the progressive playbook. They impose policies that make them feel holier than thou and better than their neighbors, policies that they can afford because they're rich. But as soon as it comes home to roost, then they get rid of it because the progressive playbook is impose policies that reflect the vanity morals of rich elites and then giving it to the working class as a burden to pay for it. That is the playbook. And that is what we saw here on full display. Now, Ron DeSantis obviously knows what he's doing here. And he knocked President Biden last week over his ability to scramble resources when it comes to rich liberal neighborhoods as opposed to border towns. Let's take a look at that. You didn't see him scramble to get his cabinet together when we hit record fentanyl deaths, which that fentanyl is coming across his open border. It's only when you have 50 illegal aliens end up in a very wealthy, rich sanctuary enclave that he decides to scramble on this. So DeSantis has also vowed to continue flying migrants to sanctuary states with Florida state funds and drew backlash from the left, of course. AOC chimed in on the situation, saying, quote, it's appalling that far-right politicians seem to have decided that the fall before an election is their regularly scheduled time to commit crimes against humanity on refugees. Don't normalize this. Lying to and trafficking people for TV and clicks isn't politics <laughs> as usual. It's abuse. Now, the funny thing is, is that earlier than that, that AOC had tweeted the clip of the woman saying te amo and weeping while expelling the migrants. And she had written, this is the best of us. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think that's exactly the point is, you know, to me, every time somebody tells you to buy an electric car, when you complain that gas prices is too high, every time somebody tells you that working class Americans should be paying off the student loans of, of, of the elites, of people who have gone to college who have that benefit, you know, every time somebody tells you to defund the police, these are policies that make rich, elite progressives feel good about themselves as long as the working class is paying for it. That was what, to me, what this episode symbolized. There's also a bit of um, uh, <laughs> extreme hyperbole in characterizing them as like human trafficking. I mean, they, maybe they were on their, you know, on their journey to the U.S. They might have been treated like that. But uh, but many of them, you know, there's I think some of them were genuinely confused or unsure of the destination they were being taken to. Others were aware where they were going. They didn't actually seem uh, very upset about it. I'll talk more about this in my radar. Um, you know, there are a lot of assumptions we make about uh, immigrants that honestly that the right makes about immigrants that I think are, are usually not accurate. Um, you know, th these people, I bet these people um, moved, the the, moved the average political view of Martha's Vineyard well to the right <laughs> while they were there. <laughs> uh, you, you know, the idea that you know, immigrants are coming here like in order to enact like more democratic or more kind of like far left socialist policies, they're actually 
fleeing socialism. They're actually running for those po from those policies that have ruined their countries. They could uh, actually educate the residents of Martha's Vineyard and other places in the country a little bit about uh, what life is like under a politically repressive left-wing dictatorship. Um, so I, I don't like to see them, you know, used as as props at all. We need a we need a smart, humane immigration policy. No one wants immigrants. Pour, you know, pouring across the border in illegal uh, conditions because those conditions are unsafe for them. It's not. It doesn't make. It's not good for anyone. People die doing it. It's dangerous. It, it emboldens actual human traffickers and drug traffickers, etc. So we need to change the system so that people can come here without, you know, without resorting to that. Really, and, and then we don't know when they're showing up, and it's and, and that does cause you know the chaos, the mess on the border. So it would be great, in my view, if Congress did something to fix that. But we'll see if that ever happens. But I'll, we'll continue this discussion next. A surge of migrants entering from Mexico has overwhelmed Border Patrol the southern border. And with shelters and processing centers over capacity, authorities in El Paso, Texas, have been forced to release more than 1,000 travelers ineligible for expulsion into the streets. According to reporting from News Nation, many migrants are congregating under overpasses in El Paso because they have no U.S. sponsors and lack the money needed to leave the area. Local authorities called the surge a, quote, manageable crisis and say for every migrant seen on the streets of El Paso, 10 have been sent through the shelters to their final destination. Southwest correspondent for News Nation, Ali Bradley, has reported extensively from the border. She was just in El Paso and now joins us from Phoenix, Arizona. Ali, welcome back to Rising. Thank you guys so much for having me. Obviously, a really important topic to discuss today. Absolutely, and thank you so much for your excellent reporting. Tell us a little bit about what you saw in El Paso and what you're seeing in Phoenix. Yeah, so when we first arrived in El Paso, there were still hundreds of people on the street and they were released by Border Patrol after being processed. So this does mean that they have documentation to claim asylum or to continue their journey in the United States. Now, when we went to the Welcome Center, some of that video that you saw inside, that's what the city is doing to help out a little bit. They have created a Welcome Center, kind of like a temporary shelter where they allow people to use charging stations. They allow them to connect with their sponsors if they have them. Now, you mentioned the sponsors. What I learned from the chief deputy um, of the city manager, he was explaining that at least 50% of these people have a sponsor or a family that they're linking up with, but that does mean that 50% of them don't. So those folks are going to be waiting for bus fare, a plane ticket, things like that. And, and so what happens is they actually are busing them to New York and Chicago. And so in New York, uh, they have sent at least 50 buses that we know of right now. They have sent a few to Chicago, but what the what the city manager was asking for was nine buses a day. And again, for the most part, those buses are going to be for people that don't have a sponsor because they are needing some assistance with transportation. So they have sent hundreds of migrants to New York and, and a few to Chicago as well. We did talk to a family from Venezuela. There's a young little girl in this video that, that you kind of keep seeing. She's in a blue t-shirt. Her name's Camilla. And she was telling us she's from Venezuela and she was really excited to go to school, really excited to meet friends. And what was really, really heartbreaking, you guys, is that she was talking about they just didn't have money or jobs and they didn't have money for food. She said we were always hungry. And so to hear a 10 year old girl talk about mm. that was was gut wrenching. And that is the tragic reality of what's happening here along the border. And again, 
these people have been processed and federally released. They have been released by basically the administration. These aren't just people that have crossed over and they, they can't be apprehended. They, they have been apprehended at this point. They have been released with documents, with paperwork. So there's a lot of moving parts here. But again, the city is doing what they can. They said they've already surpassed the $1 million mark. They will be seeking reimbursement for FEMA for that. And what, uh, in, in taking them to Chicago and New York, places like that, what, in theory, is like the next step in the, the migrants' journey? Like, what are they hoping to get in those locations? So those are locations where they might know somebody. They don't mm -hmm. have a sponsor necessarily, but they might have family there. They might have somebody there. Uh, when we were talking with Camilla and her mom, she, they were saying that they know some people there, that they have some friends there, and they're hoping to work, hoping to start a better life. And so when they get to those destinations, that might bring them closer to where their final destination might be. Maybe they're not going to be living in New York. Maybe they're going to be going to New Jersey. But that gets them closer to where they're going to be versus being on the streets of El Paso. Yeah, we watched your report and it's so heartbreaking. This beautiful little girl talking about how excited she is to get an education and make friends and how she was always hungry. Um, but that seems a pretty clear cut case of an economic migrant as opposed to an asylum seeker. I'm wondering if you have a sense of what the breakdown there was. I mean, um, they're here with papers to show up to um, court for asylum. Is that correct? And it doesn't seem like that case that she would qualify. Talk us through the difference between those things and what you saw on the ground. Yeah, so one of the things that Alejandro Mayorkas says is that just being here and crossing illegally is not grounds for deportation and every single migrant should have the opportunity to claim asylum. So I asked them if they're claiming asylum and they said yes, but like you said, they weren't mm. necessarily facing persecution when they were in Venezuela they are more economic migrants. So when it comes down to it, they, they wouldn't qualify for asylum by the terms that the congressional law puts out, but they do have a right to claim. And so that will allow them to be here for some of them don't have court dates for two to five years so that once they say the word asylum, they get to go through that process. Hmm. That's because the system is so overwhelmed with cases just like these. I mean, you create, right, you're creating a system where then you're going to have so many people seeking asylum, whether legitimate or not, and then it's going to take so long to adjudicate it, it it's, you know, mm -hmm. kind of de facto letting them um, stay here. And is it the case that they often have to be, uh, would these cases actually be heard in this, in, in the in places like El Paso and Phoenix? Because you're talking about them moving elsewhere. Do they have to come back here to appear in court? No. No, they will get a, a reporting instructions for whatever destination they're going to. There's mm -hmm. no way to get them to come back to El Paso. But you asked kind of about the breakdown. I would say from my experience, what I have seen, I have seen when I've been started covering this over a year, about a year and a half ago, I would say we did have a lot of asylum seekers and qualified asylum seekers. Now I would say it's majority economic migrants. Most of them just wanna be here to work. Most of them just want to seek a better life. A lot of them have left their kids in other countries. We talked to a woman who was living on the streets for two days. She was trying to get to California to be with friends and she left her three children in Peru because she was living in Peru after Venezuela. And she said that she did not expect this to be what she what she got. Basically, she said this was not the American dream she hoped for. She thought she would get here and get documents and be able to start working right away. And that's just not the case. They can't legally work while they're claiming asylum. So they have to work under the table. So the messaging that's getting back is kind of crossing wires and it's, it's not necessarily the correct messaging. 
And the other thing is we asked why El Paso right now, why the spike in El Paso? And the, the deputy city manager was telling us the messaging that's getting back to migrants is that it's safe to cross in El Paso right now. The river's dried out. They can walk right across. It is the next kind of big hub next to Eagle Pass where we're seeing people drown and lose their lives. So they know that they can cross right here. And they also know about the buses, he says. So the messaging right now is getting back to them that it's open, that they're going to be welcomed, that they're going to be bussed if they don't have transportation. So that's those are the things that Kamala Harris is supposed to be kind of working on is getting to the root of these problems and correcting the messaging. Hmm. It would seem like a huge kind of waste of opportunity, frankly, if they're going to be here anyway, they're going to be here for years while the asylum cases are being worked out. And you say you've talked to people who want to work, but who, who might have difficulty finding work only because of what the law allows them to do. Yeah, it seems kind of interesting, right? If they want to be here to work and they're economic migrants and the door is pretty much open to them, why aren't we allowing them to pay into the system and pay taxes and be and be part of that. I don't know. I, I mean, again, it's forcing them to work uh, under very, very tough conditions for very minimal pay. One woman that I talked to from Venezuela who actually walked in the caravan with, who now lives in Oklahoma City, tells me that she's breaking stones to build pools and it's extremely hard work, but she's not doing it legally. She's doing it under the table. And that is a situation that a lot of these migrants face once they get here is they might have a job lined up and they know they're able to work, but it's not going to be legitimate work right and so that is the situation that a lot of people are calling on the administration to look at and to reassess and to reassess the situation because a lot of them can get those agricultural mm. visas but they need to be expanded outside of that if they're going to allow this mm. seems like that would be a no-brainer Allie bradley thank you so much for joining us and sharing your reporting thank you as always take care you guys thanks we'll be back with more rising right after this We have reports that they were lied to, that they were tricked, that they were induced with false promises um, to get on planes and then ship someplace where they weren't told where they were going. That, to me, is a violation of the federal kidnapping statutes. The legal term of art is inveigling. As I, you know, as I think most people can kind of, their horse sense can kind of understand. If I roll down and find a bunch of teenagers and I say, look, kids, hop in my van, I'm going to take you to Disney World. And I take them to Bush Gardens, you know, and I take them to, to old Williamsburg. That's kidnapping. I didn't take the kids where I said I was going to take the kids, right? So I think that in yeah. this case, Ron DeSantis told these people, including children, that we take them to one place, Boston, which would have services where they would get expedited work yeah. pieces, where they would be have housing, and then sent them to a different place. That is kidnapping. And the person that we need to understand that is unfortunately at this point not Ron DeSantis, not Greg Abbott. We need yeah. Merrick Garland once again to understand that and bring the full weight and power Garland. of the federal government down on these people. I'm not sure it's actually even kidnapping. Like, if you hold someone against their will and take, like, you don't let them leave. I, I don't know. That that seemed like a little bit of yeah, a stretch. Yeah, I mean, there there are it can be bad kind of without constructive kidnapping cases <laughs> like that. Um, I, I think that you know the lawyers. There's an investigation, so the lawyers will decide what this actually amounts to. I don't know why the Bush Gardens slander had to be in there. <laughs> I don't know what Bush Gardens ever did to LA Mistel. Some of us really enjoyed that as a vacation destination as children, but uh, we got a different take altogether from Charlemagne the God. Let's take a listen to that. I personally think it's genius. 
But I wish that governors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott would give Democratic governors and mayors more of a heads up, because then that would expose the hypocrisy of the Democrats, which is they don't want immigrants here either. For months, Republican governors have sent busloads of illegal. Yeah, so you saw the looks on the faces of his guests. It was Malcolm Gladwell and Angela Rye there, two you know liberal uh, I commentators. I, I thought that was Gladwell. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's unexpected for some people to hear you know a black man who's presumed to be kind of a mainstream Democrat take that kind of position. But I actually do think there's a significant portion of black Americans who are frustrated that sometimes the immigration discussion and the discussion about whether or not wages are being driven down at the bottom sliver, at least of the workforce, you know, there's not enough attention to whether or not they in particular are being undercut there. And so I'm not especially surprised that uh, Charlemagne the God has this take. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, uh, I know. I take his point. I, look, I think... Um I don't know what your impression is. It seems from watching this story unfold and the way the media talks about it, obviously it's one of those, you know, scissor tests where everyone on one side of the issue thinks, oh my God, it's so insane that Republicans did this. They're so heartless there. How could they do this? This makes me even more emboldened as a Democrat or to support Democrats. And then Republicans do the exact opposite thing. So it's kind of hard to judge, like, who won the narrative, which is an annoying conversation anyway. But I, I, I think kind of Republicans won this narrative, but it yeah. seems like there's more. They, they made, um, given the reaction from some, not everyone, but some of the people, Martha's Vineyard, you saw some of those videos. Um, there was that, MS, we played it on the show yesterday, was that, that MSNBC video of a reporter saying, like, actually, the migrants sound very grateful to be here in America. And it just well, yes, but that was, that was never the, the issue. The issue was whether or not they are being best served in Martha's Vineyard. I think this was the part that didn't get discussed enough. Cities like Boston, larger cities and border towns, they have the resources to accept immigrants because they're typically in that position. Putting them in a place where immigrants don't typically go, where they're not the local resources to actually accommodate them, house them, have lawyers that can process their claims, it hurts the human beings involved who are here legally looking for asylum. So if you actually had an interest in human beings and had a humanist approach to this whole issue, regardless of what you think of it politically, you just simply wouldn't do that. And I think that's where conservatives uh, made a misstep here. They didn't just fly them to a city like Boston or New York that had more resources. They, they chose to make an entire stunt out of it. It wasn't about Democrats and Democratic cities it was about making a point that came actually at the expense of the, the, the families and children involved here. Uh, but you let us know what you think about it in the comments, and we will hear more next. President Biden thinks a rail strike has been averted. But do rail workers agree? As reported by Labor Notes' John Furman, only one union would have to vote against the White House's tentative agreement to shut down a substantial amount of freight rail traffic and spark a crisis in the supply chain. We're joined now by General Secretary of Railroad Workers United and Amtrak engineer Ron Kamenko, along with Editor-in-Chief of The Real News Network, Max Alvarez. Welcome to you both. Morning, guys. Good morning. Ron, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, describe the situation to me right now as you see it. We're all, obviously, I think everyone does not want to see uh, a strike if it can possibly be avoided because of the, you know, catastrophe that would be economically. But, but you know, where are we? And uh, is the picture not as rosy as the Biden administration or the news are making it out to be? Well, what happened on Friday was basically we were coming down to the wire, the end of the 30-day cooling off period. And uh, the powers that be, the union leadership, of course, and the uh, Democratic Party, and, and, and one could say the country, whatever that means in general, 
uh, would like to have avoided a strike. And so they managed at the last moment to hammer out a tentative agreement. And three of the stickling points were um, the harsh attendance policies, the inability to take time off for medical uh, personal reasons, uh, the lack of paid sick time, and no semblance of a schedule for most railroad workers in train and engine service who work over the road. Uh, so there was some degree of concession there, um, but it was also offset by uh, some of the things that the rail carriers won, such as self-protecting pools. So the devil's in the details, and right now it's just not clear, uh, especially since no one, and the unions have said this, no one has actually seen the final language. So right now it's sheer speculation on the part of the rank and file of the operating crafts as to is this good, is it bad, or is it ugly? So a strike is still possible because the rank and file have the last word and that vote will not come for some time yet. Max, I saw Jonah Furman, for example, on Friday warning that there was some risk in the media covering this as like a crisis averted because that lets the pressure off um, that the, uh, you know, the striking workers are obviously trying to build. Uh, and if people feel like this is a crisis that's largely in the rearview mirror, they basically don't have as much uh, leverage in terms of uh, arguing for the various, um, you know, uh, scheduling and time off protections that they're looking for. What's your read on how this is going? Do you think it was a strategic move on the part of the Biden administration and some more corporate media figures to go ahead and frame this the way that it's been framed, given that the language is still out and the jury is still out? So, I mean, I definitely think it is strategic on the uh, side of the Biden administration because, you know, we Biden's polling numbers had managed to kind of bounce back. There was obviously a lot of fear that Democrats were headed right in walking like headfirst into a bandsaw for the midterm elections. And then, you know, the the you know polling numbers for Democrats started to jump up over the course of the summer. They don't want to lose any of that momentum and, you know, a national rail shutdown, which would have catastrophic economic consequences, you know, if that was blamed on the workers and, you know, implicated and Biden was implicated for, you know, being nominally pro-union, Republicans would have, you know, that to to kind of rail rail about, you know, in the lead up to the midterm elections. As far as the media is concerned, I don't know how strategic it is, because I think in order for there to be a strategy, they actually have to know what they're talking about. And sadly, what I realize is most people in the mainstream media have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to labor relations, especially labor relations on the railroads. We saw this in the in the week leading up to the deadline after which um, rail uh, strikes could be initiated by the unions or rail lockouts could be initiated by the rail carriers. That was uh, last Friday that was the deadline. And, you know, the mainstream media had largely been ignoring the story all year, but we had been covering it at The Real News and Jonah Furman and the folks at Labor Notes have been doing a great job of covering it as well. But it's been largely flying under the radar and until we were at the moment of crisis. Then everyone started taking an interest. And I think like what was really clear at that point was just, um, again, how paltry our general understanding of how these things work is because we kept talking about the devastation of a rail strike, rail strike. It was all about what are the workers going to do to disrupt the supply chain? 
at the very moment that rail carriers were holding the supply chain in our economy hostage by illegally initiating soft lockouts before the actual deadline when they could do such things. So they were basically threatening Congress, threatening the economy. This is what a rail shutdown would look like if you don't cave to our demands and give us what we want. So the, the quick answer to your question, Bree, is that the crisis averted narrative is wrong in two senses. One, it's wrong, as Ron said, that we have have averted a rail strike because that may still very much be in the cards. The unions have not actually seen the details of this tentative agreement. They still have to vote on it and they may vote it down and it may only take one union voting it down for this to kind of really kick off. What we know and we all, we don't know what's in that uh, agreement. What we know for sure is that the mm -hmm. cooling off period has been extended. So the 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 energy that had built up and folks were ready to strike um, you know, that is kind of, you know, yeah. put on the back burner. And yeah. the other crisis is that the PE, the, none of this has addressed the, the real crisis on the supply chain, which has been caused by corporate greed that has reduced quality of service on the freights, reduced quality of life for workers on the freight railroads at the same time that rail carriers have been jacking up prices on everybody and stuffing their wallets with um, stock buybacks and dividend payouts. Yeah, Ron, what do you think about the coverage from the mainstream media? Uh, do you do you agree with Max? Yeah, I mean, it was so glossed over as to be either out of ignorance or, or it was just disingenuous on the part of a lot of the players uh, on Friday because we're, we were talking about actually three unions, the two unions of the operating crafts, which are big, and then the Brotherhood of Railway Signalmen, which is a much smaller organization. That's three of them. There's nine others. And of those nine others, we know that one, at least one at this point, uh, the rank and file of the IAM, International Association of Machinists, uh, voted their tentative agreement down by almost a two to one margin. And they have, ex uh, the, the leadership of IAM agreed to extend the cooling off period uh, to September 29th. And technically on September 29th, that union could go on strike. Uh, the electricians, which did a paper ballot, IBEW, uh, it's my understanding that they expect uh, to have the results of their plebiscite uh, at that exact same time. And so we could actually see two unions uh, potentially call a strike on the 29th. We don't know, but that's an option. And if they were to strike, the unions of the operating crafts, as well as every other uh, craft union out there, uh, the assumption is that the rank and file would refuse to cross the picket line, just like was done in 1992, and we would have a national shutdown. Ron, given how significant this particular industry is to the economy, some people on the left have been asking why it is that there would even be a question that a tentative agreement like the one that was reached, reached you know, on Friday would offer so little uh, in terms of concessions to workers. The tentative agreement involved, I believe, one vacation day. You know, is there a conversation happening about whether or not this moment should be used to ask for more? And if not, is it because there are concerns about how much the American public, having largely been dissuaded from union support as compared to what it used to be in the past, will not support railway workers going forward if they ask for anything more than the bare minimum? Well, there's huge discontent out there. And, you know, from the opinion poll that we ran about a month ago now, uh, every craft, every union, um, 
every seniority group and every age group uh, responded with over a 90% response rate that they were not happy with the PEB recommendations uh, and an even higher response rate in that mid around 95, 96% that uh, railroad workers should exercise their legitimate right to strike. So just from those numbers, we know that there's a huge amount of discontent out there in the rail industry. And of course, it's not just in the rail industry. It's amongst the working class in general. And that's been evidenced by what's going on at places like Target and Starbucks and uh, Walmart and Amazon and so forth. So there's an unprecedented, in effect, uprising of working class people in this country who have said, we deserve more. Um, and so what we're seeing is rank and file workers taking the bull by the horns and actually calling for actions in the form of pickets all across the country. And this is going to come as early as this coming Wednesday. This is not something that has been called by the official union leadership. Uh, and this isn't something that has been called officially by Railroad Workers United. This is a groundswell grassroots rank and file movement that is taking hold in this country right now. Uh, and we're expecting to see pickets at dozens, if not scores, and ideally hundreds of rail terminals uh, all across the country this Wednesday. And there's talk about this escalating to the point where potentially doing this every week, uh, potentially having a much larger uh, mass day of action uh, as the contract uh, things starts to wind its way through the fall and things start to heat back up again. So it remains to be seen exactly, you know, what form that discontent will take. But we know it's out there. Um, it's it's palpable. It's in the air. Mm. Well, Max and Ron, thank you so much for joining us to shed more light on the situation. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. CNN host Don Lemon is catching major flack online for this exchange made on air about colonial reparations. Let's watch. Those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism and they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back and, uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are, you know, you have all of this vast wealth? Those are legitimate concerns. Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa. And when that crossed the entire world, when the slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished sla uh, slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery why because the african kings were rounding up their own people they had them on cages waiting in the beaches no one was running into africa to get them and i think you're totally right if reparations need to be paid we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages absolutely that's where they should start and maybe i don't know the descendants of those families where they died at the, in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something too, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. 
Well, let's get right into it. Joining us now to weigh in is Newsweek contributor and business consultant, Denise Long. Denise, I know you're fired up about this subject. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. So tell us what you made of this clip. I think you disagree with the guest. Yeah, I think it was a shit show. I think it was uh, colonizers and those responsible for exceptional crimes against humanity around the globe to wash their hands and place blame completely elsewhere. So my take on this is that perhaps Don ran out of time, let's hope, and or he didn't have a response to this uh, egregious bastardization of uh, accountability. So for me, as a seventh generation American descendant of slaves, my thought on this is really that all parties are responsible, including if we're able to locate and find the Africans who were responsible for trading uh, their people into slavery. But we also know exactly where to find the, the Brits and those who continue to live high off the hog from slave labor. And it's amazing to me that this woman talks about the 2,000 people who died to make right egregious 300-year history as them getting reparations, because we already know that the British spent what is equivalent to 17 trillion, is it billion, billion in reparations to the slave owners once the slave trade was finally abolished in 1807 in Britain. So they don't get a pass for ending what they shouldn't have been involved with in the first place. Nobody told them to go by enslaved people. Yeah, this argument is really interesting to me, and I talk about it a little bit in my radar today, that somehow the existence of people who sold other people into slavery cuts off the uh, responsibility of people who actively participated and profited handsomely for, from a slave trade for years. If I were to buy a defective car that someone then recklessly drives into me, the law doesn't say that I'm not allowed to hold a reckless driver responsible just because there was also a, a defect. There's something called you know shared, shared um, uh, liability here, contributory negligence here. Um, the other thing that I do feel like I really must correct is that uh, people have been saying this a lot. England 100% was not the first country to ban slavery. Uh, Haiti was. Haiti had a, a slave revolt. It was not ended at the benevolence of the white overlords. Haitians rose up and freed themselves, and as a consequence, has been punished harshly by the international community, which saw that as a real threat to their slavery uh, across the world. That was their a really colonies. bloody incident, uh, though. Yes, it was. They killed all the white people on the island. Yeah, they, they clear, killed all the people who were enslaving them, correct, on the island, which happens in war, and it's something Women that we celebrate the context of the American Revolution when we threw off our colonial overlords and Haitians obviously have the right to self-determination and do that as mm -hmm. well. And it's very much celebrated by enslaved people uh, across the world. And it was an inspiration to the abolitionist movement here in the United States. And here's an important point. I want you to respond to this as well. You know, after that happened, Haiti paid to France reparations uh, in the amount Hello. of 112 million francs to France. So, I mean, what do you make of this return to this theme that it is the people who were enslaved that have all the responsibility here in terms of um, paying reparations in these kinds of contexts? So France needs to pay that money back with interest. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we know the ways France has been involved with uh, subverting and uh, oh, let's go ahead and call it assassinating leaders on the African continent um, and how that has also um, affected, slowed, been an, a barrier to growth and development there. Yet there's this narrative going around that people are trying to sell, especially as reparations in America and with CARICOM 
Vietnam uh, increases its momentum and its public support, both among the descendants of the enslaved, as well as among regular folk who understand that when you build a nation uh, based on slave wealth and you deprive those people of citizenship rights, wealth accumulation and the like, you are indebted to those people to repair the harm that has been caused if we are ever going to get to a state of peace and reconciliation. And I just want to correct something that I said earlier. I said no one told them to go and purchase slaves. That's actually not true. The Catholic Church was heavily involved, the Church of England and the like, and actually issued uh, papal bulls, letters from the Pope, edicts from the Pope saying, go forth and colonize Africans, Muslims, and Native Americans and the rest of the Western Hemisphere in order to take their lands for the glory of their version of Christ. Uh, so there's multiple elements of accountability here, uh, top to bottom, left to right. Yeah, look, I think, but so my hang up here with the whole kind of reparations discourse, look, if you can demonstrate that if, if you are a descendant, maybe a, a more direct descendant, a, a child, grandchild, great-grandchild, great-great-great-grandchild of uh, slaves and and there's a specific, those, the enslavers, their descendants are still around and still have wealth in their estate, then I could see why maybe you're owed something from them. When you get into the realm of, you no, know, like the entire society owes everyone of a certain ethnicity or so, independent of their circumstances, that's when I think most people or many people say, well, now we're just talking about a general like transfer of wealth independent of actual any legacy of slavery. Well, what about the crown, yeah. since that's the topic here? I, I'm not I'm not going to defend the monarchy. I, I wasn't even defending the monarchy. You made me sound like I was defending it because you were defending what that crazy professor said. But no, the crown should end and give that wealth back to whoever. I don't care. But, um, so but that's different than what I'm getting at. Go ahead. Let's address that. The entire nation and the entire world, particularly the uh, Western world, which is European, um, benefited from chattel slavery. And if you've mismanaged the wealth that you stole for 300 years in the case of Britain, and then, you know, 100 some odd years, 150 years, or actually 250 years, what am I saying? In the case of the United States, are we now to write that off because you have uh, wasted the wealth? And the reality is the wealth. The wealth has not been wasted. They are still very wealthy countries, the United States and Britain. And we know that Britain or the England um, is responsible for ceding the United States here and contributed to the enslavement here. And so it's not just the families who participated in it because the government allowed it, uh, codified it in a way into the constitution. Think about the Dred Scott decision and, and what that led to uh, eventually with the abolishment of slavery. So yes, the entire country is indebted to the descendants of slaves because there are ways that we could not get justice while our enslaved ancestors were still alive. And it's not just enslavement. It's a lineage of people, specific groups of families, 40 million in the United States of America, who can tie their family back to at least the 1800s in the United States who were under the weight and burden and terror of enslavement. But not just that, 
the 150 years after emancipation that led to the lynching era, Jim Crow and deprivation of wealth. And we still experience that discrimination today. So it's a lineage based claim, not an ethnic claim, not a racial claim. It's a specific harm, specific harms that happen to a line of uh, descendants of families uh, currently alive in the United States. Mm, that's most certainly the case. I'm happy to share my uh, the papers from my great great grandfather who fought for his freedom in the in the Civil War. Thank you so much, Denise, for joining us for this conversation today. Thank you. Glad to be here. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Well, Ravi, we are going to weigh in on Don Lemon's viral reparations moment with guest Denise Long and Amisha Cross and Abraham Enriquez will join us for our rising panel. They'll give their perspective on the lawsuit three Venezuelan migrants have filed against Florida Governor DeSantis. We'll also dig into what is going on with Puerto Rico's privatized power grid with Puerto Rican journalist Angelica Serrano-Ramon. But first, let's continue on this journey of the migrant busing saga. So yesterday, President Biden responded to reports that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was possibly sending migrants from Texas to Delaware. Let's watch that. You should come visit. We have a beautiful shoreline. There you have it. Earlier in the day, the White House said that the administration was coordinating with state officials in Delaware to prepare themselves for the arrival. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked whether or not the president had been in contact with DeSantis or Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the immigration dispute. And here's what she said. Has the president reached out to any of these governors? So here's the thing, and I was asked this question earlier today. I don't know why we would reach out mm -hmm. to a governor or governors who are clearly playing a political game, right? It is something that they're doing not to find a solution, but to literally, literally put people's lives at risk. Okay. I mean, that is an interesting perspective. I mean, I certainly agree with the idea that this is a political stunt, that this is not I've acknowledged done, that many times it is. Yeah, in, in an effort to, you know, help migrants or to really find the best solution to this issue. But I do think that there is something to be said for having a conversation about what, for example, would end this kind of a practice if, if Biden and Democrats legitimately, legitimately feel like this is a stunt that comes at the expense of the well-being of migrants. I would, I would think that there's some interest in stopping it and talking about what kind of remedies would, you know, that these people would accept, or at very least have the conversation so that Biden can say that he came to them in good faith and tried to work through solutions, and they were the ones that rejected the proposal. Yeah, and I mean, putting their lives at risk, I mean, they're getting a, a flight to somewhere else in the country. I mean, the entire migrant journey puts their lives at risk, um, not, you know, when, when the facilities are overwhelmed and there's not adequate place for them when they're in Texas or wherever else they are, some of them end up um, on the street. I mean, that's putting their lives at risk. This, I, I agree that this is, you know, that we need to come together and find an actual solution to this instead of just like relentlessly playing politics. But because they are human beings, but the the current system um, puts them in danger during during the crossing, and then we're having this status for them that is ridiculous. Uh, you know, we need to actually work toward fixing it. And so that was a uh, unfortunate, I, I think, uh, note of just defiance from Biden, a just refusal to come to the table. If, if, if Republicans aren't going to work with him, if they're going to you know, persist in just kind of like 
doing the, doing stunts, that kind of thing. Well, then fine, but he's not even trying. Yeah. Did you did you ever have an adult tell you when you were a little kid, look look out for the helpers? <laughs> I feel like, yes. Yes. You know, when you're, when you're looking the at these politicians, and they're they're always playing these games, and it sometimes can feel like just a, a circle of blame game, and, and you don't know who to trust. I'm looking for people who have solutions. And even if you're talking to someone who's acting in bad faith, if you're the one that's proposing a solution, even if you don't think it's going to be accepted in good faith, you still look like you are coming to the table to play. And I think that's what voters want to see. Mm. Well, meanwhile, DeSantis called out the administration for ghost flights after a reporter questioned whether or not there would be a migrant flight going from Texas to Delaware. So when Biden is flying these people all over the fruited plain in the middle of the night, I didn't hear a peep out of those people. Okay, I didn't hear a peep. heard a peep about all the people that have been told by Biden you can just come in and they're going they're being abused by the cartels they're drowning in the Rio Grande you had 50 that died in some shed in Texas I heard no outrage about any of that now, some said this was all a nothing burger. CNN's Caitlin Collins reported that while the administration was tracking reports of migrants being flown to Delaware, according to a spokesperson from the Department of Homeland Security, there were no reports of migrant planes entering Delaware as of yesterday. But it is true that, and this goes to a point I've been making as we've discussing this, look, the migrants don't have to and don't always, in fact, often don't, stay right on the other side of the border when they come through. They are, they are free if they've, claimed, if they've made an asylum uh, claim for, uh, for, uh, under the asylum, political you know, repression. They make that claim, and then until that claim is adjudicated, which could take years, mm -hmm. they are free to roam the country. They can move about the cabin. And, they can, and also, if there's children in the mix, the, under U.S. law, the, the government, our government, has to find foster care for them or, or if there's a family, you know, cousins or some, someone somewhere in the country related to the, the child you can place them with. That involves often putting them on buses or planes and taking them to other parts of the country. So immigrants like moving around, even immigrants whose you know, status is not totally adjudicated or known, moving around is something that like happens now. I get the Republicans are doing this specific thing for a political stunt, but this is something that happens normally. Yeah, I think the argument and at least the argument that I made yesterday was the concern is that moving them specifically to Martha's Vineyard was a problem because they don't have the resources there as a destination that's not a typical destination for immigrants for myriad reasons. Because it's not a place with a particular amount of ethnic diversity where people are meeting up with family members or whatever from across the world. It's not a place that's close to the border. It's not a big city where there's a lot of um, financial opportunities or business opportunities or industry. And so and it's also an a place where they just didn't have as many beds and resources, immigration attorneys and the like for the people who were dropped off there. So yeah, I agree. I think the scandal is less so the idea of immigrants moving around the country or that they would even have that immigration facilitated. I do think it's the choice of where to fly them uh, and that choice being made without any consideration of what's good for the migrants. And also Ron DeSantis' involvement at all as someone who's not actually from a border state. All right, he's doing this facilitating in the middle. Well, right, he's involving himself, I think, quite obviously to raise even further his national profile um, as he seeks to become the thought leader of the GOP, the, 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 he's trying to replace Trump. Yeah. Uh, and he's doing a pretty good job of it, in fact. I think his odds of being the next Republican candidate you know, have gone up 
dramatically in the last year from now I, I think he would certainly give Trump a run for his money if they both if they really both absolutely and it's actually it's things like this that play extremely well I mean despite no matter what you think about them you have to concede they play extremely well with the very conservative Republican base with the kinds of voters he would need um, he, he needs to show these voters that I know you love Trump but I actually do things Trump mm -hmm. just talks mm -hmm. I do things the shit and, out of watch for yeah. sure <laughs> Stay tuned. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve set in motion another rate hike in the fight against inflation. The Fed raised its key interest rate by 0.75 percentage points for the third time this year, which some say could break the dam on a recession. Here's Fed Chairman Jerome Powell making the announcement and signaling that more hikes are likely to come. The FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point, and we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. We are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%. Bank CEOs balked at the aggressive price hikes while testifying on Capitol Hill and warned that the increases could actually cause a slowdown in the economy and could put millions out of work. As Senator Elizabeth Warren said, she fears Powell is on the path to increasing unemployment in the labor market. And while Powell has signaled more hikes to get inflation down, Fed officials forecast that rates will rise to 4.4 percent at the end of this year and believe that the rate of inflation will return to their goalpost of 2 percent by 2025, which is still a long ways off. Yeah, and look, this discussion about how they are afraid it's going to push unemployment, there was an explicit commitment earlier this year that that was the goal here, that unemployment was going to bring uh, inflation down. And so we have been having this ongoing conversation, particularly on the left, about whether or not, quote unquote, saving the economy must come at the expense of the lowest tier of American workers, of working people and working families, or whether or not there are alternative ways to go about doing this. I've spoken to a number of progressive economists on my own show, and we've spoken to some here about alternatives, but it is distressing that there seems to be this openness about pursuing a strategy that is going to be so detrimental for workers, especially ahead of midterms. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's no, this is not good. We don't want um, unemployment to rise, obviously. I mean, we want to go, some of us want to go back to the pre-pandemic economy times where we had um, a very full, very robust employment and uh, a very healthy economy and low inflation. Um, it should be possible to accomplish all of these things at once. The, the government you know, is no stranger to solving, trying to solve one problem, not really solving it, and making a bunch of others' problems worse. So, look, I, I think it's not necessarily a great thing, but we do have to get inflation under control. Um, you know, one way to do that is simply, or one way to, even if we don't get in inflation under control on its own, we need to fix the gas prices, the food prices, all of that stuff through um, through different policy, through ending the Ukraine war right. um, and, and whatever else the administration can do. Because, yeah, just, you know, just trying to reduce inflation and causing unemployment to rise again. Well, yeah, I under absolutely understand why that's not really making the situation better overall. Yeah, that's a really great point. What do we do about the cost of food and goods? Uh, founder and compound capital, uh, founder and comp of compound, sorry, capital advisors laid out this comparison. Two years ago, a 30-year mortgage rate was 2.87%, and the median home price in the U.S. was $310,000, compared to today, where a 30-year mortgage rate is 
6.02% and the median home price is $390,000, which means a $16,000 increase in down payments and a nearly 82% increase in monthly payments. Hmm. An op-ed over at Bloomberg predicts that this market volatility will largely distinguish the economic winners and losers of the decade into two groups, those who bought homes before 2022 and those who didn't, contributing to the widening economic inequality between homeowners and renters. The financial outlets also report that U.S. income inequality rose to record, uh, broke records under President, Ob uh, President Biden, according to the Census Bureau. U.S poverty climbed for a second year straight in 2021 and household income slightly dipped. Last year, 37.9 million people were in poverty, which is about 3.9 million more than in 2019. So it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not a pretty picture. So first and foremost, Robbie, can millennials catch a break? I mean, the, yeah, the, the no, we're subtext. the most persecuted generation. We we graduated, uh, you know, yes. into the recession. Um, yep. I graduated in 2010. Uh, oh, you, times. You, well, you graduated in like I graduated from college in 2007, yeah. started law school a month too. after the, the market yeah. crashed. And, you know, everything has, we've been off to the races since then. And not to mention, obviously, the way that COVID has now affected the generation coming up behind us. When they say things like the have and have nots are now going to be divided up between those who bought houses um, before and those who are buying houses after this crisis. What you're really saying is that entire generational cohorts are being locked out of the American dream, not to mention all the people, obviously, from older generations who are locked out as well. And since we've based our entire uh, middle class uh, status in this country, your ability to attain middle class status on this one economic prong of home ownership, it's very curious to see what's going to happen as as interest rates continue to be driven up, as people are increasingly locked at, out, and as rents start to increase at a dramatic level, before the cause of renters was not so much of a central bedrock middle-class cause in the national discourse, but as increasing portions of Americans are long-term renters for life. As when you talk about middle-class families, we, we were talking more about renters and not people paying mortgages. I'm curious as to whether or not we're going to have a different kind of discourse coming out of both parties. Yeah, that's true. Although, to be clear, millennials disproportionately prefer to live in areas of the country where where renting is more affordable than buying or where buying has just gotten... Well, that's a relationship, the though, isn't front. it, right? You know, I would be happy to live in various parts of the country if there were the same kind of job opportunities right. there, if they were, were pay was as high there. Sometimes I think people talk about the idea of being able to just randomly move to the middle of Oklahoma and take advantage of a you know, $200,000 house there um, without thinking about whether or not you can get a job there that yeah. even enables enables you to keep well but the rise of virtual work is making that for sure. a, a lot more possible for a lot of jobs um and uh and and yeah so that's you know that's a good option for, for more people should probably do that yeah. but also it would uh the extreme like political polarization that are, like all like-minded people on like the blue side have have uh, coalesced in cities that, uh, from a tactical standpoint should spread out the Democratic vote to more places like yeah. Oklahoma. Look, that's why my mom, remote work, the story that exactly yeah. that you just told us, why she just moved back home to Cleveland, Ohio after 20-odd years in New York City. So uh, I know some millennials who moved to, who moved <laughs> to Ohio during the pandemic. <laughs> All right, maybe Tim Ryan uh, stands a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But, uh, no, I, I well, he stands a little... I'm looking... I, so I just finally pulled up the... Um, the uh, the map where you make it to make your predictions for mm -hmm. who's going to win the Senate. I, I'm still putting that one very much in the Republican 
Fox, but I don't know. We'll see. Look, I was a big Morgan Harper supporter. That was the progressive candidate in the primary. And if Tim Ryan doesn't, in fact, pull it out, and the argument was that Democrats had to rally behind him because he was the most electable candidate, I wonder what that does say about the messaging progressives can advance for themselves next time we're in a primary situation like this. We do have to, we have to make our maps before Election Day. <laughs> All right. I'm very competitive about this. Earlier this week, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre blamed the current immigration crisis on a flow of migrants fleeing authoritarian regimes in Latin America and chastised Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for exploiting, quote, victims of communism by flying them to Martha's Vineyard. Let's watch. Let's remember, these folks are fleeing communism. When you think about Venezuela, what's going on in Venezuela, when you think about what's going on in Nicaragua, when you think about what's going on in Cuba, they are fleeing political persecution only to be used as a political pawn by the Florida governor. The way that we see it is alerting Fox News uh, and not city or state officials about a plan to abandon children fleeing communism on the side of the street is not burden sharing. That is not the definition that we see of burden sharing. It is a cruel, premeditated political stunt. That is not what they're, that is what they are doing. Uh, and so we're always, we're always happy to have conversations about ways to further improve border processing and we could be doing more if, again, if we're Joining us now to discuss his reaction is co-founder of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Nick Cruz. Glad to have us, have you with us, Nick. Uh, thank you for having me on. So I, we want to ask you about this question of how much communism is really to blame for the uh, immigrants who have chosen to leave Venezuela. Is, is the press secretary here uh, accurately describing the motives for um, so many people leaving the country? What's been going on there? Uh, my first reaction when I saw that, I was thinking, like, is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Uh, there's literally no difference there between the Biden administration messaging on this issue and Trump's messaging on this issue as well. There's no difference between a Jim Psaki or a Stephanie Gra uh, Graham or the Kareem Jean Pierre and the Sean Spicer. It's the same thing. The same way that U.S. foreign policy does not change between it doesn't change between presidents at all. And the idea you're going to blame communism instead of U.S. intervention, all three of those countries she named are countries that the United States have put sanctions on and interfere with. And this is kind of the same thing that Chomsky was saying as well. When you look at uh, Donald Trump and you look at Joe Biden, they mostly have uh, the same foreign policy. When it comes from seeking regime change in Venezuela, sponsoring genocide in Yemen, closing up with Saudi Arabia, funding and shielding the apartheid state of Israel, their hardline stance on Iran, and escalating with China. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. How can you blame an economic model for the failures and what happened to the citizens when you guys are illegally seizing their assets and not allowing them to sell their oil on the international market? You had the Bank of England who had, they just had a, a sham trial where they said, we were like, oh, well, the $1 billion in gold that we stole from Venezuela, we had the right to do that. And it's, it's very telling that you see the same colonial powers, where it be the UK, Germany, and the United States, imposing their imperial conquest ambitions on the global south. They think they have the right to ruin the lives of Venezuelans, for example, and other countries because they reject their capitalist imperialist political agenda. The, the Venezuelan people 100%
knows what's going on. That's why Nicholas Maduro is stronger than ever. And this is another example of U.S. sanctions failing. They know the United States government is trying to take them down to install far right wing fascists that is mostly white, that is mostly bourgeoisie, that has been waging an active class war against Venezuela. When you look at Nicholas Maduro and the socialist revolution that started 20 years ago, that is mostly supported by black, indigenous, and poor people. And you have the white bourgeoisie who in charge of the media, who run all the country, all the companies. They have been waging a class war backed by the United States, backed and supported by the United States. So it's the height of irony. The Democrats and Pierre, they complain about January 6th. If you look at the coups they sponsor in these countries that she, that she listed, that, that January 6th is child play compared, compared to what we do to Venezuela. We back Bolsonaro, who used to send death squads into Venezuela to assassinate and kill Bolson, uh, sorry, Badero uh, supporters. You had the hard, far-right fascists in Venezuela that was setting left-wing supporters of Nicolas Maduro on fire in the streets. These are the people that we support. So the idea that you're going to blame an eco- economic model instead of our actions is ridiculous on face value. Uh, okay. Look, I also oppose uh, many of the policies you just mentioned, the support for regime change. I would get rid of all these sanctions, too. But, like, let's not gloss over the long history of corruption and political persecution by left-wing regimes in all of these countries as well, um, the, uh, under policies that have totally immiserated um, Cuba and Venezuela. It, it's on and on and on. I think it's— Cuba. I think it's laughable to say oh, it's all cuba. the u.s's fault so cuba has a higher life expectancy than the united states a higher literacy rate a much better health care system despite the fact that the united states stole billions of dollars from them so i'm asking you robbie what's the excuse for the united states of course there are always missteps that governments make but the united states <laughs> is the richest empire that we ever seen one out of five children live in poverty in this country. If you look at Skid Row, I am asking you, what is the excuse for the United States? You have Venezuela, you have Cuba, you have all these countries that has been the victim of U.S. economic war that you guys call sanctions. Sanctions is seized warfare. You guys locked out Venezuela from the international market. You blame their economic system. We have the record amount of income inequality in this country. That is higher than the, the era of serfdom. So, Robbie, what's the excuse for capitalists? Who's sanctioning us? I don't think Skid Row, I mean, the, the, the collapse of American cities under progressive liberal democratic regimes is not really an indictment of it, the Trump United, policies the, the or capitalist policies. I mean, we, we get to the, well, the if the it's United so great in Cuba, why are they fleeing they here? Why are they crossing shark-infested waters? Well, well, Robbie, the point that Nick is making is that, it look, if you really think it's the economic systems in Cuba or Venezuela that are so destructive, why not lift sanctions, let them sink or fall Matt, on their own merit, I and then we have a legitimate conversation about whether communism fails. But what so many people on the left are frustrated with is that there has never been a communist or socialist government that has been allowed to freely test the model without the economic war, I love how you put it there, Nick, against them that basically rigs the game from the start. There's also never been a communist regime that doesn't imprison political dissenters, uh, cause deliberate famine, kill millions millions of people. Are you saying that we don't? Are you saying that we don't? 
I am not. Saying, are you no. saying we that have, the communists do? No, I've indicted. Country. I've indicted all of our policies. This is why we can never have honest conversations. But, but I will criticize having... everything that we do, everything no, the capitalist West governments do, and they say, "Oh, so you're well, not criticizing them?" I'm saying all the sanctions are <laughs> wait, bad. Wait, wait a minute, and then guys. you turn around and excuse political repression under no. thug-like communist regimes we, that have killed we, millions and and starved millions. Well, it's ridiculous. Well, wait a minute, Robbie. It's, I, it's look, insulting. Nobody here that we didn't bring up the political oppression because I think the observation that I think because you don't want to talk about it. it. You don't want to concede that it's true. I'm literally trying to, if you just let me get the sentence out here, Robbie, I think what Nick and I are pointing to is that political repression, all kinds of authoritarian abuses, those are things that exist around the world regardless of uh, political uh, orientation. However, those things are only brought... <laughs> wait a minute. Those things are only brought up... Most, The overwhelming majority of countries in this world are capitalist, and most of the bad things that are happening in this world are happening under capitalism. However, capitalism is never blamed for the bad things Not that happen capita. in a country. Co- everything that happens in a communist country, per Karine Jean-Pierre's statement, is attributed to communism. You're talking about per capita. America has the largest number of people incarcerated, living in cages, in jails, and anywhere else in the world, not per capita, but period, despite not being anywhere near the largest country in the world. We have more people in jails than China. And you can say and dispute Chinese numbers and what's true and what's false and blah, 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 blah. But nobody can dispute the fact that we have an unprecedented and enormous mass incarceration problem. So this is not to excuse anything anywhere, but the the point still stands. If you think that communism and socialism are such a unmitigated disaster, why is that they have not been allowed to go ahead and run their own countries into the ground without American political interference. Yeah, we shouldn't have American political interference. I, Again, I agree. I say it every time on this show, but they would not be so, thriving on their own and have never thrived on their own. So you well, realize that mm-hmm. U.S. state policy, when they, when they put Cuba embargo on there, was to destroy the economy because they didn't want to show an alternative to capitalism. If you capitalists are so confident that communism will fail, why won't you leave it alone, Robbie? Why, why won't you guys leave it alone? I mean, why I'm not in charge of the policy of the country, country, man. I would, I would rescind so all of the sanctions the tomorrow. Well, Nick, and you, can't, me... you can't claim that these countries are also authoritarian because imagine what would happen. And you saw Democrats right now prosecuting January 6th protesters. You had the CIA literally sponsor death squads in Venezuela that tried to overthrow the president. Do you know what the United States would do? If we did the same thing, so be, get real, Robbie. This is how the real world works. There is no such thing as overt authoritarianism. It's countries upholding their laws. Laws are a thing, Robbie. You can't overthrow a president without consequence. Well, look, and I think that Robbie does, you know, appreciate that. And I, I, to his credit, would if magically we're president of the United States and maybe this will get in my vote. A lot of, a lot of <laughs> things would be different. Would lift sanctions on countries like Venezuela, but it seems pretty clear that most people, um, frankly, regardless of political party in this country, most of our political leaders anyway, would not do the same. And I think it's a really interesting tell about their lack of confidence that all of their narratives around some of these countries would actually including a lot of the, mi- the migrants. So I, w- I would absolutely support and have supported forever ending the Cuban embargo. A lot of the Cuban migrants who come, one of the reasons we don't do that is there's tremendous political pressure on Florida politicians, on Florida Republicans from Cuban migrants who don't want to do that. Can you, can you explain why that is? Please, please. The Cuban bourgeoisie that has been waging a class war, the same people who fled because Fidel Castro wanted to share the resources with the poor, they don't want to lift the Cuban embargo. Go to Cuba and ask the average Cuban. No, no, no. Go to Cuba and ask the average Cuban how they feel about the Cuban embargo. So these class traders that moved to Florida, their pain means nothing. 
saying they didn't want to keep the Cuban embargo? Does that sound like people who care about the country, Robbie? Or, or people that support U.S. hegemony and capitalist uh, domination? Yeah, like, I, I, want, I want the uplifting of the global working class, and you guys rather destroy the global working class just so you guys can say zingers like communism never worked, that Cuba is failing. Leave these countries alone and allow them to thrive, and then we can talk. Until then, you have to explain to me, Robbie, what's the excuse for the United States for the massive poverty, despite the fact that we have no country sanctioning us? Where's the U.S. embargo, Robbie? But we got Skid Row. We got people without health care. 60,000 Americans die each year because they don't have health care. 300,000 plus could have, saved, could have lived through the COVID pandemic if we had health care. So what's the excuse for the United States? Who's the giant power that has got their boot on our neck? Our ruling class has failed. The central planning model of the United States has failed. So to, to point the finger at other systems and while you live in the empire that people are starving in is the height of cowardice. Mm, well, I, I mean, our ruling class is definitely failing the American people on a lot of the subjects you just mentioned, no, the uh, crime, uh, uh, drug addiction, et cetera. Um, so <laughs> but we, I'm, I'm sure we agree on that. And yeah, let's, uh, let's withdraw those, uh, those policies and see how it shakes out. Yeah. Well, look, I think we have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Make sure you guys check me out on Revolutionary Blackout if you had a chance so you get some uh, real international reporting that can tell you the truth about the crimes of the U.S. empire. Much appreciated, Nick. We'll have more rising for you right after this.